While many of us shelter at home, essential care workers are coming into daily contact with coronavirus as they attempt to treat its victims. They are working long hours in an NHS that struggles to cope with seasonal demand. But right now, doctors and nurses are facing a new threat, one born out of a very real failure to prepare for the outbreak, shortages of personal protective equipment. But while the NHS workers are thanked with a countrywide applause every Thursday for protecting society, perhaps there is something society can be doing to help protect the NHS workers. An army of volunteer enthusiasts is looking to do exactly this. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. And in this episode, we are looking at how the UK is crowdsourcing local 3D printing capacity to boost dwindling supplies of PPE in the face of COVID-19. And we ask how this might bring about the 3D printing revolution we've been promised so many times before. But really, the biggest shock to come from all this supply disruption is no shock at all. We have known for many years that our supply chains are long and thin. Spindly with no buffers built in to protect against unforeseen problems. They stretch all the way back to countries that can mass produce what we need most cheaply. Combine this with just-in-time manufacturing and you have an industry that is hugely vulnerable to sudden disruptions. The shortages during this outbreak have revealed our gaunt supply chains at last. As politicians dispatch RAF planes to investigate supply holdups in Turkey, and businesses nervously await the return of regular cargo shipments from China, it might just be time to start looking at building safety buffers into our reliance on global logistics. But reorganising the global economy in the future doesn't help vulnerable NHS workers today, who are left without adequate supplies of PPE and don't have time for major suppliers to recover. For that, we need an immediate response. For that, we need help. It is three in the morning, and Tony Thompson's alarm has just sounded, disturbing the fragile silence of the night. He would like to ignore it, but he can't. The shrill bleeping insists that he attends to something urgent. Something that simply cannot wait until sunrise. He turns off the alarm and tries to climb out of bed without waking his wife. Quietly, very quietly, he tiptoes out of his bedroom. Unfortunately, I'm no ninja according to my wife. I tend to wake her up and then go downstairs. And then he heads to a special place, a place where he keeps some very important equipment. He calls it his man cave, but... The wife calls it a conservatory. And uh, obviously at three o'clock in the morning, it does get a bit chilly in there. So when I try to sneak back into bed, I'm also very cold. And the best way to, to warm up is have a cuddle. She's always moaning I don't cuddle her, but at three o'clock in the morning when I'm cold and I've already woken her up, she's not best impressed. But before Tony can join his sleeping wife in their warm bed, he has something very important to do. Something that could save lives. Tony is one of the thousands of volunteers across the country who are sacrificing their sleep to fabricate protective face shields for workers exposed to COVID-19. And to save lives, he needs to keep his 3D printers running all through the night. For Tony and his wife Lynn, a part of a volunteer army that are not only sacrificing their sleep to protect people, but are part of a movement that could change manufacturing forever. 
my name is Tony Thompson and I'm currently working at Northampton College as an engineering and uh, an electrical assessor. Originally, Tony trained as an engineer in the Royal Navy. Then, after 13 years service, which included the Falklands War, he spent over 20 years in industry. But it was something from the first stage of his career that brought him to the college. When a wound sustained while on active duty had finally caught up with him. I went down to the Falklands in 85 and, uh, and had an unfortunate accident where a high pressure airline burst while I was on watch in the boiler room and uh, our airline pressure there was over 3000 psi and it, it damaged uh, my back. That over the years as I've got older has actually got a little bit worse and I've had two operations recently and I was starting to find the physical work in engineering uh, quite difficult. But with modern technology, taking a less physical approach to engineering can offer its own opportunities. I got into 3D printing about three, four years ago now, yeah, well, just over four years ago. It all started, well, it's something I was interested in. That magazine came out, that you, one of these magazines where you, you spend a fortune and you get like a screw and a bit of plastic each week and six years down the line you have a 3D printer. But Tony said that after a while, the excitement of printing little bits of plastic that other people designed wore off, and he started to prefer working on his own designs. That was until the coronavirus hit Europe. Now using a Creality Ender 3 printer, which he says is infinitely better than his first, Tony realised he could help in the current crisis. I've started to now do PPE for NHS, key workers, a lot of care workers, things like that. How, how that came about was I'm obviously involved in a lot of 3D printing groups and, and that sort of thing. And I got a message asking, would I be interested in helping out a group called Print for Victory? Print for Victory is a local volunteer group that is organising people to 3D print face shields and then distribute them to those who need them most. The group connects volunteer printers with people who need PPE that live near them. And when we spoke to Tony in early May, he and Lynn had just completed their 700th face shield. The shield consists of a 3D printed headband with a slot that allows an A4 sized acetate or similar clear plastic sheets to be inserted, forming the shield. But first, you 3D print the headband. First of all, there needs to be a design. Now this would be something drawn up in a 3D CAD package and there's quite a few free packages available. Once you've got the, the, the right design, you then have to prepare this design to go to a 3D printer and you use a package which is called a slicer. A slicer looks at your 3D model, which at this point is basically a 3D shape with its surface made up of lots of triangles. Then, as the name suggests, it slices this into layers. Some of you can remember when at school you used to make little dioramas and things of landscapes by using layers of cardboard. It's a very, very similar process to that. This is then converted into G-code, which is a language used to tell a machine to perform an action, such as move a printing appendage. Now what a G-code is, is basically just coordinates. You have an X and a Y, which is across and behind, and then a Z, which is the height. Then it is time to print. The principles of a 3D printer is you will have a reel of uh, a media. In this case, we're using PLA. Polylactic acid, or polylactide, which is one of the most popular materials for desktop 3D printing. I use PLA because it's one of the easiest plastics to print with. It's also biodegradable, which in this day and age is always a, 
a bonus and that comes in a wire form which is about 1.75 millimeters in diameter this plastic wire is then fed through a hot end the hot end we heat to around about 200 degrees although this can vary depending on your printer your supplier of pla considerations such as color or even how cold and drafty your man cave is so it is a bit of a a tweaking process so what happens then the g-code will instruct the printer to feed out a certain amount of this molten filament and it will basically draw the outline of the shape on layer one once it has the outline it will color in the first layer then it moves up a layer and it does the same. It will color it in at the opposite angle. Obviously that gives you a better strength. Tony can fit three headbands onto his print bed and complete them in two hours and 35 minutes. Next comes the actual face covering. We then use a acetate or laminate, a, a clear plastic sheet basically of uh, A4 size, approximately 150 to 240 microns thick, depends on what you can get. Materials are difficult to get hold of at the moment. And that will slot in to the front of the face shield. So that can be removed, it can be cleaned, it can be changed if you want to. You can put the thicker ones in if you've got a thin one. Thankfully, there are lots of designs out there to choose from. This has been down to a global response from the 3D printing and design community. With Tony handling the printing and Lynn handling distribution and taking the orders, they are helping to fill a need for PPE. But Tony hastens to add that this is an emergency protective shield. Because it is, it's homemade, uh, it doesn't carry sort of any CE mark or British standards or any of that type of regulation. However, Print for Victory have put together a... <laughs> A disclaimer sheet it's not just a disclaimer sheet it tells you how to look after the mask how to disinfect it and we're classing this as secondary ppe still in high risk roles users may want to wear fully approved masks underneath the shield the crowdsourced ppe functions more like a splash guard and will provide protection if someone coughs near the wearer but these will have a massive effect of reducing the likelihood of anything actually getting to your face the speed and the sheer number of volunteers that have answered this call for assistance has been incredible. 3D printing is an industry that has had its history of vocal proponents, who have been prone to overly optimistic projections about its potential. But the current situation has piqued the interest of people who have been involved in and have been watching the 3D printing sector for some time. We spoke to one of them. I think for me it's the it's this idea of decentralized manufacturing which a lot of people have been talking about for quite a while and hasn't really happened because of all these issues of well how can we make sure that things have the right quality this is Mark Hester and how do we make sure that there's a network that can deliver goods? You know, when they, when they talk about people, everyone having a 3, 3D printer at home and printing their own spare parts for their washing machine, you know, that's, that's a dream that's been sort of dangled out there and has, has never happened. He is co-founder and the technology director for the Imagination Factory. This is a product design and creative engineering agency that under normal circumstances makes use of 3D printing for some prototype fabrication work. But this, this is the first time I've actually been able to see decentralised manufacturing working and it's because there's, there's been such a great demand for the product and because it's been very localised 
demand. So you've got a hospital here or a GP surgery there or a, even a vet you know, here and they need this face shield now. And because you've got these hubs that are then able to draw in the products from local makers and literally deliver them within you know, a, a very short time period at a time when the typical supply chain is broken and has revealed all of its weaknesses. I think this is the first time I've seen decentralised manufacturing actually working. Mark's experience with 3D printing goes back to the early 1990s. He got a job as a model maker at a design agency in West London. The very first thing that I was presented with on my first week was a part that needed sanding and finishing. And it was made using a process called stereolithography, which is a form of 3D printing. And I'd never seen anything like it. I'd, I'd vaguely heard of it, but, you know, this was pretty new for someone fresh out of university doing a design course. And so it felt magical to have this part in front of me that had not been machined or made by hand. It had literally been built by a computer with or built by a machine being run by a computer with a bath of resin and a load of lasers i mean that just sounds so cool right but in practice 3D printing still had limitations. For a long time, I only knew of 3D printing in that way. It was a very expensive process. The, the parts were extremely expensive and you would only use them if you were a professional design company where it saved you time. Uh, where someone making something by hand might take a week, you could get a part in a few days. Fast forward to the current crisis. It has been 30 years since that first introduction to 3D printing. And Mark received a call from a friend. He knew what I'd been thinking about and said that his brother-in-law was about to go into a COVID-19 hospital ward the next day and didn't have uh, enough PPE. And in particular, he was missing a face shield, which is the thing that we had figured out we could make using 3D printing and fairly sort of low-skilled manual techniques. It was an emergency response to make something, sterilise it as far as was possible, and then stick it in a bag for a bike courier to take on to where it was needed. That made me start to think that maybe there is actually a way in which we could use 3D printing to, to really help with this situation. Mark found himself volunteering his time and his printer for one of the larger organisational groups in the country, 3D Crowd UK. The group organises some 8,000 volunteers and as of the 8th of May had produced 126,000 face shields and had received 600,000 orders. So one of the things that made me feel that 3D Crowd would be a good organisation to get involved with was the fact that they had decided to ask their members to only make uh, from one particular 3D file. This was a face shield developed in Czechia until recently the Czech Republic, by a company called Prusia. A major player in 3D printing for decades. They worked with the country's health ministry to produce something that they were able to get approved for use as PPE. So at the time, that was the only thing that had got that far and that had been considered in that way. And so whilst didn't have any specific C marking or didn't pass any regulations as far as the UK is concerned, I realised that this organisation were actually at least thinking along those lines and trying to work out what's the best practice, what's the best way to do this. 3D Crowd UK has some people printing the headband and other members providing the clear plastic face shields. These components are then assembled at a hub before being sent where they are needed. Like Print for Victory, 3D Crowd UK is having its members produce secondary PPE without yet having the CE mark. 
It is an unusual experience for Mark, having come from a professional design background. Being a designer and working in this world and being used to only ever working on products that have appropriate standards and regulations and always knowing that we need to work to those things, um, it definitely made me at times uncomfortable, but then also written, having had that personal contact from someone who said, look, I'll, I just need to wear something. It made me realise that so long as we were following the standard operating procedures, then yeah, we're, we're, we're doing the best we can. A benefit of having an organisation acting in sync like this is that any updates to the design or changes in best practice can be rolled out quickly. And everyone's kept aware of what's the latest version of, of this document. You have to make sure that you do everything according to that, which includes keeping your workstation clean, making sure you're wearing PPE yourself. The organisers have had to kind of keep on top of that and as and when they get new information about how to improve it, they send that out. Mark is one of the volunteers producing the headband for 3D Crowd UK. To do this, he's using an Ultimaker 3 printer from a manufacturer called Ultimaker, who are based in the Netherlands and have been making printers since 2011. Probably the, the company that most successfully made the leap from hobbyist type DIY 3D printers, which became very popular at, at one point in time, that they made the leap from that into a machine that could actually be used by companies like the Imagination Factory, uh, in terms of its quality and the materials available, but most importantly, the ease of use. To keep such a vast movement of volunteers working in unison, 3D Crowd UK limited the types of materials that it has approved for use in the headbands. There's two materials which 3D Crowd have asked us to use. The Ultimaker can print many, many different materials, including sort of flexible rubbery ones right through to carbon fibre, loaded plastic, things like that. But for the purposes of the, the headbands, they asked us to use a material called PLA. This is the first material, the one that Tony Thompson is also using. So. PLA is a plastic that's commonly used for 3D printing because it doesn't give off toxic fumes. So it's a nice nice material to print with. From that aspect, it's also very reliable. So you can um, pretty much just put that on and send your file to it and walk away. And it's available in a, a variety of colours. Materials have become scant. Resulting in PPE being supplied in wild and wonderful colours. And the second material that 3D Crowd UK asks its volunteers to restrict themselves to is PET-G. Which is typically it's a version of the material that something like a, a drinks bottle would be, you know, a water bottle or a, a soft drinks bottle would be made from. Um, and then it's, that's PET, and then it's got something called glycol added, and that's the G in, in the PETG. That's a material that's potentially better for the headbands because it's actually kind of food safe and is better for contact with the skin. And it's also a little bit more, it's a bit tougher than, than PLA. PLA's weakness is that it can be brittle. But the problem I had was that um, PETG doesn't seem to print brilliantly on the Ultimaker that I've got. And I think that's mainly because the nozzle size that I'm using is quite small. The Ultimaker is really very good for high quality 3D printing. And it's, yeah, it has quite a fine, quite a 0.4 nozzle. And um, I think that that means you can build in nice fine layers, but it wasn't really working. And so I had quite a few fairly catastrophic failures um, that meant I had to cut lumps of plastic off my 3D printer, unfortunately. This means that Mark has stopped trying to work with PETG, but with so many people working together, it's not hard to find someone in need of his spare material. 
and they just turn up on the doorstep and we swap it for a box of PLA. It's amazing. Perhaps it is true that crisis is the best teacher. Mark has found that he is now a better printer. I've learned more about what, I, what, what the Ultimaker is capable of and the different settings that are within the software through being involved in this project than I ever knew before because I've never needed to, to kind of look into the details. So um, yeah, it's been fascinating. Volunteers across the country, such as Tony and Mark, have been working to boost the supplies of protective equipment in the face of an unprecedented surge in demand that has seen traditional suppliers unable to react quickly enough. The time these volunteers have bought has allowed new designs to emerge. One of these was designed by the University of Nottingham's Centre for Additive Manufacturing. They have been working with support from local partners Matsura Machinery UK and Rico UK, as well as the Prime Group and Nottingham Trent University, to produce a face shield that would not only pass the rigorous BSI tests, but would also be built using methods that would allow it to be mass-produced. We spoke to Richard Haig, director of the centre. Sharp-eared listeners may remember him from episode 19, which explored the future of 3D printing, and we will link to this episode in the show notes too. Most of the Visor initiatives have been printed with uh, fused filament type printers, so F, they're called fused deposition modelling systems, FDM printers. And they, you, know, you can use a range of materials in these, and PLA is a very popular one. But the centre has found that it needs to be a major supplier in its own right, and in the immediate future has been tasked with delivering 5,000 face shields to frontline NHS workers in Nottingham alone. A production target that Richard says would take them a week. We discounted the use of these FDM printers for these visors, and the reason we did that is because they're not very scalable. You have like one nozzle printing the whole thing, and so printing thousands of these is quite hard, and so we wanted to have a more scalable option. This more scalable option is called a powder bed fusion technique. There's two versions you can use. You can use one that uses lasers to fuse the powder together, so that's selective laser sintering. Uh, and there's another from HP actually who uses an uh, they effectively jet in a, an infrared absorbing material into the powder bed and then selectively um, melt that part together. The main powder that is used by Nottingham is Nylon 12, also known as Polyamide 12. And many more units, up to 70 at a time, can be made per printer in a 24-hour print cycle. But just as crucially, this method allows for improved geometry in the print which has allowed the team to include one very important feature on their product, a covering above the eyes. So these head shields basically have a bit that fits to the forehead and then there's a gap to where the, the visor itself fits, but it's important to have that gap covered so that if anybody coughs above you, if you're leaning forward and somebody coughs, that there's no in ingress of fluid, if you like, into the eyes from above. And so that was a, a key parameter. This meant that the team ruled out a lot of the open source designs that were available at the time. We came across one that was being distributed by HP and that had a fully 3D printed strap and a, and a head covering as well as the headband. So we, we looked at these different aspects and thought, well, the headband's fine, but actually we might want to alter the strap. So we basically altered the strap so it was a, a lace cut. Uh, part. We carried on 3D printing but using industrial 3D printers to make the, the actual headband bit and we then tested these with a couple of sizes of visor. After taking the open source design by HP, 
the university and its local partners made the decision to avoid 3D printing for the parts that did not require it. And then they re-evaluated the width of the visor too. Our main improvement, if you like, was the fact that we've got a much wider laser cut visor. So instead of the 297mm wide A4 visor, ours is 350mm wide. And that means it, uh, it safely wraps around the, around the face and protects people from the side. Richard's team is also looking at the reusability of their face shields. So what we've tried to do is create a, a 3D printed headband that is reusable and a strap that is reusable um, and can be cleaned with the, the standard techniques that the hospitals or healthcare workers would use, but then have a visor that is replaceable. And so there is, there is a replaceable element on this, um, but it is, it is one where uh, you can basically unclip the visor and, and, and put a new one on. Five replacement visors are being packaged in with each face shield produced by Nottingham. Because of these improvements, and although the announcement had just gone out when we spoke to Richard in early May, he had already received interest from other groups wanting to make use of his work. We've unwittingly become manufacturers of, of things, but we're, we're not going to be able to supply these in their millions, all right? So what we've tried to do is make the, our designs open source. So we're very happy for people to go away and take our information and and create their own visors. He adds that although people would be working on visors created to a CE standard, the actual approval refers to Nottingham as a manufacturer. Other people's processes and systems haven't been evaluated, so any PPE wouldn't be automatically CE approved. Although BSI has created an expedited route to get this accreditation in a recognition of the present need. So once we are through the crisis and out the other side, where does that leave 3D printing? Will we see it form a critical part of a new, locally focused manufacturing sector? I think one of the useful things to come out of this for the 3D printing community is it's been able to show that it can be used for something useful, right? And it's not just there for printing little models of Yoda at home or, you know, or what have you. This virus has shown that for simple but functional products made with ordinary materials, a distributed base of small-scale manufacturers can be very effective. However, at the higher end of additive manufacturing, the focus is often now on functional materials, meaning materials that have their own intrinsic properties, such as semiconductors or piezoelectric generators. These are then combined in complex geometries, something that 3D printing facilitates, rather than just straightforward plastic production. This is outside the scope of what people can currently achieve at home. So I still think the perception of 3D printing in most people's minds is these small office-based or home-based systems that are extruding material. And that is not really what 3D printing industrially is going to be about. It's going to be about these more powder-based um, powder processes, either for metals or polymers, actually. But what this current situation has shown is that actually 3D printing, even, even the fused filament examples, they can be used for something useful and you can do something responsively with them and they are good for low, you know, good low volume production and getting things to, to market quickly. The crisis has shown the danger of gaunt supply chains stretched out over thousands of miles and then localised in one or a small number of countries. It may be that in the future we will see industry attempt to reorganise itself around more localised supply hubs and build more resilience into supply chains. There's going to be 
hopefully a renewed emphasis on on reshoring and making things locally and i think that the whole covid situation with all the supply chains around many many different items has highlighted that uh, you know we're we're vulnerable every country is vulnerable right and so i think that one of the tools in the toolbox for helping companies manufacture components in the future will be additive manufacturing Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Alex Conacher and Rian Owen, edited by Bernadette Ballantyne, sound designed by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, Rory Harris is our executive 3D printer, and Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps or on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. To support any of the volunteers mentioned in this episode, Please see our show notes for more information.